Well, good morning, folks. Glad you all are here. Hey, would you grab a Bible? Uh, You could grab your own Bible. Great. If you don't have your own Bible, there should be some Bibles scattered in the pew backs in front of you. And would you turn with me to the book of Romans? So if you're looking uh, at your New Testament, you'll find the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You'll find the book of Acts. And then you'll find the book of Romans. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 7, making our way into the first four verses of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 7. And uh, as you're turning there, um, I'd like to uh, invite you one more time just to stand if you're able. And we're going to read our passage this morning. And so find Romans 7 and stand with me, please. We've been in, uh, we're summing up, wrapping up our New Covenant sermon series. We've taken a look at three of the key provisions of the New Covenant. We've seen our new purity and our new person. And this morning, we'll take a look at our new power. So Romans chapter 7. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Paul writes, Do you not know, brothers and sisters, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man, while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is is not an adulteress if she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what we once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For, if I, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment, that which was intended to bring life, actually brought death. For sin, seizing the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is good, holy, righteous, and good. Did that which was good then become death to me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good to bring about my death so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, But it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I do not do, for if, excuse me, for I do not, (laughs) for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So, I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus the law of the Spirit, who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And that is a reading of God's holy word. Would you have a seat, please? Let's pray together, and we'll dive in. Father, we ask that the words of uh, our mouths and our our hearts would be well-pleasing to you, and that you would guide my lips, that I would say the things that are faithful and true to your word, and that you would teach us how to live the Christian life by the power of the Spirit, and not according to the flesh. We, We pray and ask it in the powerful name of Jesus, and God's people said together, Amen. Well, you may have heard it said of the Civil War that brother fought against brother. And in some cases, that was actually literally true. Take, for example, John and Henry McLaughlin. Now, they were from Marion County, Indiana. As the story goes, John enlisted with the Union Army as a lieutenant, and Henry enlisted as a private with the Confederate Army. And so, in the month of May, and the year was 1863, the brothers found themselves, quite literally, on opposite sides of the battlefield, literally fighting against one another at the Battle of Vicksburg. Literally brother fighting against brother. It was indeed a civil war. In a similar vein, Paul this morning in Romans chapter 7 is going to speak of a civil war of a different type. A civil war that was occurring within his own heart, within his own life. He's going to give us a personal account of the struggle between what he calls his flesh or his sinful nature and what I will call his, his, his new person, his born-again self as a Christian, as he tried to fight sin and pursue obedience in his own strength. Now, his testimony there in chapter 7 is a part of a larger context in Romans chapter 7, which is about the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses and whether law-keeping is the means 
of Christian growth and fighting sin. And the answer that Paul is going to give us in chapter 7 and moving along into chapter 8 is that self-empowered law-keeping, simply gritting your teeth to do that which is right, is not the means of spiritual growth. But rather, it is simply relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And so let's follow along in our text, starting in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6, as Paul talks about the release from the Mosaic law that Christians experience. Again, chapter 7, verse 1. Do you not know, brothers and sisters? For I'm speaking to those who know the law, lowercase l, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. And so what Paul does is he begins with an axiom in verse 1. He essentially says, don't you know that in the, in the realm of legalities that, that the law of the land is only binding on a person if that person is alive? So take, for instance, Lee Harvey Oswald. We know that he was never brought to trial. Well, because you don't bring corpses to trial, right? You can't try a dead person. Because when you die, the law goes with it. And so he begins with an axiom in verse 1. He quickly moves from the axiom to the analogy. And he applies that axiom to the analogy of marriage, starting in verse 2. For example, he says, By law, a married married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. So then, if she has sexual relations with another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But, he writes, if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress if she marries another man. And so he has given us an axiom. He has given us an illustration, an an analogy of that axiom. And then what Paul does in verses 4 through 6 is he applies both the axiom and the analogy to the Christian's relationship to the law of Moses, to the Old Testament law. Verse 4, so, this is his point, so my brothers and sisters, you, speaking to Christians, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. Towards what end? That you might belong to another. Who is that? To him who was raised from the dead. What is the ultimate goal? In order that we might bear fruit for God. And so he applies the analogy to the life of the Christian. He says, just as in the analogy, the death of the woman's husband freed her from her legal obligations to her husband and allowed her to get married to another, Paul declares here in these verses that Christians, because of our union with Christ, our death with Christ, Christians died to our obligation to the Mosaic law, thus allowing us to be free to get married again. And who is it that we are married to in Paul's analogy? It's Jesus, right? Sunday school answer. Jesus, our great bridegroom. I want to point out, what is the point of this transaction? In other words, what is the point of our death to our obligation to the law of Moses and our marriage to Christ, our bridegroom? Well, notice what he says. He says that, this is the purpose, that we might bear fruit that we might be fruitful in our relationship with God. 
I take that to mean in order that we might fight sin and pursue obedience and holiness. Next, in verses 5 and 6, he explains why all of this was necessary. Why is all of this necessary? Verse 5, 4, he's explaining it. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, friends, when was that? When were we in the realm of the flesh? Well, it's before we got saved. When we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions, notice, aroused by the law, were at work in us. So that we bore fruit for what, church? Death. Not life, not God, but death. Notice the contrast in verse 6. But now, having become Christians, but now, by dying to what once bound us, the Mosaic law, we have been released from the law. What's the point? So that we serve, that is, serve God, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If I may summarize it for you, Paul is essentially saying this. He says, before we became Christians, when we were unsaved, we lived in this realm which he calls the flesh. And notice, how did our flesh interact with the law and the commandments of God? He says that God's laws actually aroused our sinful passions. And that led to spiritual death. But, he says, when we become Christians, verse 6, we are freed from the law and our obligations to it in order that we might serve God through the power of the person of the Holy Spirit. And so let's ponder our first, I'll call it, power principle for today. Because we're examining this third provision of the new covenant for the the life of the Christian, the new power. And so what we see from these verses is this, is that the Christian life is to be, to be empowered by a person, not a pronouncement. A person, not a pronouncement. And so I think the question, as we think about as Christians, if you are in Christ this morning, the question we need to ask from these verses is this. Am I pursuing the Christian life as a code to live by, or a person to live through? Are we pursuing living the Christian life as a code to live by, or a person to live through? John Stott, the great evangelical writer and commentator in his commentary on Romans chapter 7, pinpoints this, and he says this. He says, We need then to be careful, lest we should ever slip back from the new order into the old, from a person to a system, from freedom into slavery, from the indwelling spirit to an external code, from Christ to the law. Friends, let me be clear. It's not that the new covenant that we have been examining and exploring these past weeks does not have commandments. It does have commandments. It's not that there are no laws uh, under the new covenant. Paul says that we are under the law of Christ. But Paul says here that we can pursue the Christian life. We must pursue the Christian life in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written 
code. In other words, we need external power from the person of the Holy Spirit to live this thing called the Christian life. Because, friends, hear me, God's standards, God's laws in and of themselves cannot alleviate our helplessness to obey. Do you hear me? God's law in and of themselves has no power to help us obey. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And so, friends, the Christian life is essentially one lives not through a code, but through a person. Think of it this way, if I might use a simple analogy. Imagine yourself being in a lake. Uh, if you want to call that thing over there a lake, you can. Uh, but I'm thinking of a larger body of water. Uh, Sorry, if you're in the lake, right? It's like a pond. Um, a, a lake, and, and you're wanting to go water skiing. And so you put on your skis left and right, and you're sitting there in the lake, and you're ready to go, rope in hand, but you have no motorboat. You're just sitting there in the lake with skis on. Let me ask you a question. Is that going to do you, those skis going to do you any good at all? Well, of course not, right? You're just going to sink or you're just going to float there, right? Because skis, well, they provide direction and they provide stability. But friends, what provides you with the power? It's the motorboat, right? The motorboat provides you with the power to keep you from sinking and to make you glide over the water. Friends, it's similar. The Christian life is similar. God's laws are sort of like skis. They provide direction for us. But they themselves are powerless to keep us from sinking into sin and sailing above uh, the water, if you will, in supernatural living. Only the Spirit of God can do that in the life of the Christian. And so he's introduced to us the idea that we are released from the law and that we serve God, not in the old way, but in the new way of the Spirit. And so we want to say, Paul, well, what does that look like? What does that mean? Well, he's going to get to that, but it's a little bit later. In fact, starting in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, he's going to articulate that more. But what he does in in the rest of chapter 7 is he takes a rather lengthy aside. A sort of lengthy aside, first of all, he wants to answer some objections. Because likely there are Jewish Christians who are like, what? I'm set free from the law? Well, how does that work? And Is the law a bad thing? Well, he's going to answer those objections in verses 7 through 13. Next, he's going to tell his own story. Maybe you noticed it as we read the text together. Paul is going to give us essentially a testimony in chapter 7. First of all, I believe, about the law's work in his life before he met Christ, before he was a Christian. And then afterwards... And we'll see that in the verses to come. But first of all, we see Paul defending the goodness of the law of God, starting in verse 7. He anticipates objection. And so he puts the questions in the mouth, uh, the mouth of his objectors. Number one, he, he asks two questions. Number one, is the law sinful? In other words, is the law bad? Like, is it a bad thing? And number two, did it become death to me? In other words, does the law itself produce spiritual death? If I could just make it simple, Paul is going to say, he's going to ask, what's the problem here? Is the problem the law or is the problem me and you? Is it the law or is it us? That's the question essentially. And he answers these questions, I think, though there's some debate, by sharing his experience with the law of God before he became a Christian. 
Let's read it again, verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Is it the law's fault? Certainly not. Nevertheless, notice he's speaking of his own personal experience here in the past tense. And I think that gives credence to the idea that this is Paul's uh, experience before he was a Christian. Past tense. I would, not, I, would have, <clears throat> I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting, for example, he says, really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, notice the language, produced in me every kind of coveting. He says, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Notice the language. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment, which was intended to bring life, actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment put me to death. So what's his conclusion? Verse 12. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Question number two. Did that which is good then, the law, become death to me? Did the law make spiritual death in me? By no means. Nevertheless, in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it used what is good, the law, to bring about my death, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Okay, so let me unpack this for us. Here I believe Paul is speaking of how the Spirit of God used the law of God to convict him of his sinfulness and of his guilt and thus of his need for a Savior. Notice the language. He says once, he said there used to be a time that I was alive apart from the law. I take that to mean that uh, when he was a Pharisee and he was seeking to obey God's law, he thought he was alive. This is the path to life. Law keeping, it's the path to life. He thought he could be right with God that way. But he speaks of a time when the full force of the, the perfect obedience to the law became necessary and it sprung into life, sin and death. He died. In other words, he thought he was spiritually alive, but in reality, he was what? He was spiritually dead. This is what he's essentially saying. He's saying the law is good. We didn't die to the law because the law was bad. No, we died to the law because we were bad, because our flesh was bad, because sin in us interacts with God's law in an unholy way. It's not the law, Paul says. It's me. <clears throat> I don't know if this has ever been told to you, but I recall... Um, so let me set the scene. Let's say that you are in a dating relationship. Think about maybe there is a time when you are in a dating relationship. And that person came to you and they said, so-and-so, this is just not working. We need to break up. I'm sorry. And then they, they might say something like this. And I hope nobody's ever said it to you. But they might say, you know what? It's not you. It's not you. But then what do they say? It's me. It's me. First of all, know that they're lying. It's not true. It's always you. They're just trying to be nice. It's not, it's not you. It's me. That's kind of like what Paul is saying here to the law. He's saying, law, it's not you. 
You're good and holy and righteous. You come straight from God. The problem is me. It's me. It's what's inside me. And then notice just three things very quickly. Notice how our sinful natures, here I think Paul's unconverted sinful nature, interacts with the commands of God. Just take a look in your Bible. Verse 7. First of all, the law reveals sin. Did you notice that? The law reveals sin. He, he says, I wouldn't have known what coveting was. Had I not heard the law, you shall not covet. Just like an x-ray machine reveals something bad inside of us, but itself is not bad, God's law makes us aware of sin, but it itself is not bad or wrong. So the law reveals sin. Verse 8, it, it actually provokes sin. Did you notice the language in verse 8? Sin, seizing the opportunity, produced in me every kind of coveting. So, so the law not only reveals sin, but it provokes it in our flesh. So a very simple illustration. Let's say one night I have the Awana kids and we gather here in this corner to sing. And uh, let's just say that that afternoon I painted this wall and it was still wet. And so I hung up a sign that says, wet paint, do not touch. And I said, kids, let's go sing. Stand over there like you normally do. Oh, and I'm going to get a drink of water. I'll be back in a minute. And I leave the room. Now, those kids, if they look at that sign, what are they going to do? Sit here like angels, right? Of course not. They're going to be like this, boom, 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 right? And there's going to be 20 dirty hands if there are 10 kids, right? Um, because there's something about our natures that when a law is put in front of us, what do we do? We want to cross it. As you drive home today, you see 55 miles per hour. Just check and see if that's true, and you'll find out that it's true, Right? So it's what happens. That's our nature. And then third, he says in verse 13, the law exposes just how bad sin is. And so Paul defends the law, and he speaks, I think, of his unsaved nature. And so here's where he's going. If this is how our sinful natures, when we weren't Christians, interacts with the law of God, is that the means that we should use to, produce, to, to live our Christian life? I think the answer is, is no. And so he turns and he shifts gears, I believe, from the past tense to the present tense, to his past experience as an unbeliever, to his present experience as a Christian, a converted man. You can't miss the tense change. And I think he's going to say, you know what, that's, that's still how the law interacts with our sinful natures, even as Christians, what he calls the flesh or the old man. That part of us which still rebels against God, it still interacts with the law in that way. He's essentially saying, in these two sections, that the law is not only impotent to save us, but the law is impotent to sanctify us. We need the Spirit of God. So, first of all, verses 14 through 20, he describes his experience as a Christian, I believe, trying to just grit it out and do what God wants without relying on the Spirit. And then in verses 21 through 24, he sort of explains his experience. So let's hear it again, starting at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual. It's good. But I am unspiritual, even as a Christian, sold as a slave to sin, even as a Christian. There's still a part of me that is, a, in a sense, a slave to sin. Verse 15, I do not understand what I do. Let's see if I can read this right. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. 
As, as it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is what? Sin. It is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good. In other words, he's got a, a new person, a new disposition. He delights in the law of God, but I cannot carry it out. He lacks power. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Friends, if you're a Christian here this morning, can you relate to that? Can you relate to that? I know I can. I think the key statement is found in verse 18. He says, for I have the desire to do what is good. That's true of every born-again Christian. We desire to do what is good. But if we pursue God on our own power, we can say along with Paul, but I cannot carry it out. This is the new, uh, this is, um, the new person operating without the new power. Right? You want to do what is good, but you don't have the, you're not leaning on the Spirit. Again, John Stott is helpful. He says in these verses, Paul describes the inner conflict of those who are still living under the regime of the law. He says, if, if left to ourselves and our fallenness, we cannot keep God's law, even though we delight in it, nor can the law rescue us. He sort of explains his experience in verses 21 through 23. So, he's summing it up. So I find this law, little case L, like this principle, this principle, I I find this law at work. In other words, this is what is going on in me. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law, little L, another principle at work in me. And then here's, here's our phrase, waging war. Paul is describing a civil war. Is he not? Waging war against the law of my mind, what I want to do, making me a prisoner of the law, little l, the principle, the law of sin at work within me. And so he describes his experience as a Christian without leaning on the Spirit. And this agonizing tension brings forth this lament of verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Christian, have you ever said that? I mean, like, have you ever said that in a moment of sin and failure? When you just said something you you didn't you didn't want to say, you did something you didn't want to do it. Have you have you been there before? Please say yes, because I have. What a wretched man that I am! I need help. I need deliverance. And so, from that from that agony comes the all important question. Read in verse twenty four: Who will rescue me? Who's going to rescue me from this body that is subject to death? In other words, where can I find relief from this inward struggle? Before we get the answer, I want to articulate another power principle here. It's this. We must come to the end of our spiritual ropes in order to experience God's new power. Paul is articulating his own experience And he's saying, I want to do right, and I can't, right? What a wretched man that I am. Who's going to help me? Friends, he is at the end of his spiritual rope. We have to realize the utter impotence of our flesh 
and our utter need for the power of God before the Holy Spirit can flow through us. One story is told by a Christian author by the name of Watchman Nee. Yes, look it up. Watchman Nee. And he tells a story that he was once with a group of Christians, and they were on a boat, and one of the brothers was goofing off and fell into the water, and he couldn't swim. And so he's thrashing wildly, calling out for help, and it just happened to be that, um, that there was only one brother with, uh, with them uh, who could swim. And so there's only one person who could save him. And so Watchman describes how he watched this man in the boat. And he's like, are you going to jump? Are you going to do something? Are you going to, you know, like, he's, this guy's drowning. And, and this, this, this gentleman's just like, sitting there. And so finally, he tells a story that finally, when the man was about to go down, that, of course, he was rescued, and, and, and the Christian came in. And so Watchman said, why did you wait so long to, to help this guy? And the man said, and I quote here, If I had jumped in immediately, he would have been strong enough to drown us both. Only by waiting until exhaustion could I then carry him out safely. And he applies it to Romans 7. He says, only when we come to the point of spiritual exhaustion with our own resources will we turn then to God's. And so who's going to rescue him? He gives the answer in verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he says, who's going to save me? Jesus is going to save me. But he doesn't explain it. Not, not yet. Jesus is going to explain, it, it, save me. But he summarizes. So then, I myself in my mind, like his new person, I myself in my mind <clears throat> am a slave to God's law. So there's a part of me that wants to obey God's law. But in my sinful, sinful nature, I'm a slave to the law of sin. And so he says, there is going to be a civil war in the life of the Christian until kingdom come. But I want to make this point. Paul asks the question, not what will deliver me, but he says what? Who will deliver me? Is there a difference between a what and a who? Is there? A big difference between a what and a who. He doesn't say what's going to deliver me. He says who's going to deliver me. Friends, A what will never enable us to obey. But a who always will enable us to obey. And that's the person of Jesus Christ as he imparts the Holy Spirit to us as we see now in chapter 8. So let's move into the performance of the law. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. So the question then is, how is God the Father going to deliver us from this civil war through Jesus Christ our Lord? He's going to tell us how we can get out of our Romans 7 experience to get in, uh, into a Romans 8 experience in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, therefore, here's the answer. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus because, reason, through Christ Jesus the law, the principle, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Friends, Paul begins in verse 1 with a wonderful gospel blessing. He says, if we are in Christ, God will never condemn us to an eternity apart from him because of our sins. Is that great news? Yes, it is. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But but that's not all. Verse 2, there's a second blessing of the gospel. And it's one that Paul actually introduced all the way back in chapter 7, verse 6. He called it back then the new way of the Spirit. Now, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of death. Think of it this way. 
to use an illustration. Um, the law of sin in the life of the Christian is sort of like the law of gravity. When I drop my Bible on the ground, where does it go? It goes down, right? The law of gravity always is pulling uh, downward, if you will. The law of sin is like that. It pulls us down spiritually. But the law of the Spirit, which gives life, this principle of the Spirit at work in the life of Christians, it's like the law of aerodynamics, right? It overcomes the law of sin, and it lifts us up, enabling us to fly, if you will, victoriously over our flesh. And so we've seen two gospel blessings in verses 1 and 2, right? We are justified. We are declared righteous before God. We're never going to be condemned. And number two, the Holy Spirit lives within us, enabling us to overcome this this civil war that is inside of us. In verses 3 and 4, Paul then goes on to explain how God accomplished those things for us. In other words, how did God do that for us? How did he make provision both for our justification and our sanctification? Notice in verse 3. How is it, Christian, that that you experience no condemnation? Answer, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin what? To be a sin what? Offering. To be a sin offering. He says our flesh was powerless to obey. Therefore, we could never be perfect before God. We deserved condemnation. But who took our condemnation? Jesus took our condemnation. He was a sin offering. He took our condemnation for us. So that God could say there's no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. Question. How is it that the Spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death? Answer, the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He says, because our flesh, even, even after we are saved, is powerless to overcome sin and to help us o- obey God. God sent the Holy Spirit to meet the law's requirement in us. That is a wonderful promise. Doesn't what Paul is saying here sort of sound like the new covenant promises that we began with so many weeks ago? For instance, like Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 27, where Ezekiel promises, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Isn't that essentially what Paul is saying here in chapter 4? God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be met in us who do not live according to the, the flesh, but live according to the spirit, right? One pastor put it this way. He said, having God's law in front of you is good. Amen, right? Having God's law in front of you is good, but having God's law in you is best. And that's the power of the new promise. And so here's how we're going to end. We have seen Paul's personal testimony of the civil war inside of himself and how he overcame it by leaning on the Spirit. I want to share a story with you of a gentleman by the name of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a British Christian missionary to China, and he was the founder of uh, the, the China Inland Mission. And I want, we tend to think of missionaries as like super spiritual people, right? 
Like they're, they're a notch above. Um, and that may be true to some degree. But I, I just want to share with you Hudson Taylor's own writing about his own struggle, his own civil war as he went on the mission field. He says, I began the day with prayer, determined not to take my eye from him for a moment, speaking of God. But the pressures of duty, sometimes very trying, constant interruptions, apt apt to be so wearying, often caused me to forget him. He said, each day brought its register of sin and failure, notice his words, a lack of power. To will was indeed present within me, but how to perform it I found not. Does that sound familiar? Paul says, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He continues to write, I prayed, I agonized, I fasted, I strove, I made resolutions, I read the word more diligently, I sought, uh, I sought more time for retirement and meditation, but all without effect. He said, every day, almost every hour, the consciousness of sin oppressed me. Instead of growing stronger, I seem to be getting weaker and have less power against sin. And he says these words, I hated myself. I hated my sin. Does that sound familiar? What a wretched man I am, Paul says. But then there was a breakthrough. He was in correspondence with a friend who had a very similar struggle. And so through this correspondence, he then sort of had a breakthrough. And he wrote of that breakthrough in a letter to his sister. So he writes this. But how to get my faith strengthened? He says, it's not by striving after faith. In other words, it's not by working hard. It's not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. If God places me in great perplexity, must he not give me much guidance? In positions of great difficulty, much grace. In circumstances of great pressure and trial, much strength. And he says this, I have no fear that his resources will be unequal to the emergency. And and his resources are mine, for he is mine, and I am his, and he dwells in me. And so a a co-worker of Hudson Taylor noted this change in his life, and he wrote this. He said of, of, of Taylor, he was a joyful man now, a bright, happy Christian. He had been a toiling, burdened one before with latterly not much rest of soul. He said it was resting in Jesus now and letting him do the work which made all the difference. And it does for us as well. Would you pray with me? Father, we're grateful for your word and for all that it gives to us. And we're grateful that you have given us, through faith in Christ, this new purity that we can be declared righteous, though we are guilty, that we can have the righteous life of Christ applied to our own sinful life and that we can have our sins forgiven and our guilts uh, uh, taken away. We're grateful that we have been made a new person, that you have caused us to be born again through faith in Christ and that you give us your Holy Spirit to enable a life of obedience. I pray that these things would be increasingly true in our life. We ask it in Jesus' name and God's people said. So before we go, I'm going to beg three minutes of you. Uh, I, want to, I want to thank you, uh, each and every one of you. Uh, and in particular, I want to thank the leadership of the church, both the elders and the deacons, uh, for offering me this uh, wonderful opportunity to go on sabbatical. Um, I am 
overwhelmingly thankful for a church that supports me in this and that allows me to do this uh, as I desire to be your church, your pastor for many years to come. Uh, I endeavor that this would be a time of refreshment and rest and reflection and, uh, um, and refinement personally. And so I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you a million times over. Please pray for me. Pray for our family. We'll be around. It's not like I'm going to be like, out of the state for three months or something. Like, I'll be here. I'll be at my house. We'll, we'll be around. If you see me at the grocery store, say hello or otherwise, right? Um, I'm not taking a break from you. I want to see you. I enjoy you. I'll be here at church periodically uh, with Shelly and the kids, and so we'll be around. Um, uh, I mostly cover your prayers, so pray for us during this time. Uh, and want to end with an exhortation. Don't lean out, uh, but lean in. In other words, don't be like, oh, summer, Trey's not going to be here. Just, uh, you know. Friends, I am not this church. And if I ever become this church, then God help us, right? We are a church together, right? And so don't lean in, lean out. uh, Don't step away, step up, right? This is a wonderful opportunity for us to be the body of Christ. So thanks. God bless. See you around.